Greetings, everyone. There's a slight booming noise I hear to you, kind of a, an echo in this system. I don't know if there's any way we can get it out or not. Maybe it just tuned up or turned up a little bit too high. I don't know. We'll see. Well, as I think all of you know from the bulletins that may have been read where you normally attend church, or perhaps from some of the letters you've received, we've now been on SPN cable television for, I think, four Sabbaths, or maybe it's three, three, I believe. And on May the 6th, we begin on Nashville Network. Unfortunately, it's virtually, yeah, it's better, it's virtually useless to us uh, from the mountain states out to the West Coast because it's going to be 5.30 a.m. on the West Coast, 6.30 a.m. Mountain States, 7.30 a.m. Central, which is kind of brutal on Sunday morning, and 8.30 a.m. on the Eastern Standard Time Belt. So it is worthwhile to us, nevertheless, for covering at least half of the country from 7.30 or 8.30 a.m. Every Sunday morning, beginning on the 6th of May, and we follow Jimmy Swaggart. But then somebody, somebody has to follow Swaggart, and uh, so we might as well. So far, we have been having a very, very good response, especially on the programs that I did on the subject of the real Jesus. And when I mention many, many times the radio, I should say the uh, telephone number, and hold up the book and tell them that it's been reprinted and they can have a free copy. And when we do that, the telephone's about to ring off the hook down to the office. I think we had 176 new calls on this weekend alone. And at that rate... Uh, not even, you know, counting whatever impact we could expect from Nashville television, we're going to more than double our mailing list in one year. Now, with Nashville, it may be treble or quadruple, and there are other developments coming along I don't want to talk about until they are a fait accompli, and that I can tell you perhaps afterwards. But everything seems to hit all at once. We took the decision to begin Watch Magazine once again, and we are going to stick with that, although I think we may only end up with about three editions this year instead of four. We are quite late with the international news. That has been as much a financial decision not to spend the money as it has been merely to be late. Uh, we have decided that we will alternate so that every time we have an issue of Watch Magazine, we will probably not have the international news. And as I said in a recent letter, we may go back to an in-house, smaller church newspaper that we can typeset. Uh, Gene Roberson sinks low and, and uh, runs and hides. Uh, in our own equipment that we can print on our own presses and not have to pay the Gladewater Mirror for its big newspaper rotary presses for the newspaper or to pay an outside person for the typesetting. But if we can do that, it'll save a great deal of money, and we're going to have to save a great deal of money because we've had to take dollars to replace dollars. So as you know, we've already called a lot of the radio stations, and many people who have been hearing on WOAI late at night or WCKY will no longer hear the program there. Uh, it's funny how people will prevail upon you. One person told, I think, Mr. James Throgmorton, who told me when we were up in Poplar Bluff, Missouri last Sabbath, oh, please tell Garner Ted not to take the program off WCKY. I listen to it every night. And I think this person had never yet written in. But that is the way many people do feel about it. And, of course, Mr. Throgmorton said, well, that's fine. You just send him a check big enough to keep him on there for the next year, and I'm sure he'd stay. Or whatever, maybe that's what he wanted to say. But many people do not understand, and I have been asked that question in personal appearance campaigns all over the country, well, why can't I get you on television anymore in my city? And I'll say, well, whenever enough people here realize that uh, the bills have to be paid, and even though we cannot ask the general public for money, 
It is a matter of a tithe-paying church organization. We're just not large enough yet to be able to have television scattered all over the country at every conceivable hour uh, because we don't have millions to waste. I know some people who do. Millions to waste. Matter of fact, so many millions, they sometimes don't even really know what to do with the money. And a lot of it does end up, end up being wasted. We just don't have it. So we've had to cancel all existing radio, with the exception of a handful of sponsored programs that some of the local churches are still putting on, and we're sending tapes to them if they want to continue, although it would behoove all of those who hear this tape later or who are here and who may be involved in sponsoring a radio program, call Benny Sharp, ask him how many letters you've had in the last month. We have had a couple of cases where we've had like one letter all year, but the people keep sponsoring the radio program in their area thinking it's doing some sort of good. I don't understand that. I'm not really sure that, that anybody is listening, maybe not even the engineer, and uh, maybe the person who sponsors it is, or a handful of other brethren, but I don't think anybody else is listening. Or if they're listening, they're not responding, and uh, we cannot afford to have very many places where they're not responding, or else we just simply don't operate anymore. Well, I've explained time and again, even to the general public, which I did in Dallas a few weeks ago to the community college, how the work is financed. And I explained to them that we have, and I, in this sense, was able to speak quite highly of the other organization because, because the method that has been used by the Worldwide Church of God, and when I was pretty much in charge of that organization, is a very ethical method. A three-tiered response the hors d'oeuvres is radio, television, the printed page, such as the plain truth, in our case, Watch Magazine or the International News. Display literature, public literature of an attractive type which would deal with subjects such as socioeconomic problems or crime or divorce or child rearing or the weather or whatever, but not dealing with the days of unleavened bread and with the immortality of the soul or with the kingdom of God. The second tier or level would be the more doctrinal booklets, heaven, hell, the judgment, the millennium, the resurrection, and of course that would be geared toward a proportion of the audience who really develop a keen interest in doctrinal subject in the Bible and what the church teaches and really are thinking about their own lives in a very serious way for the first time and are thinking about repentance and baptism. That's the second tier. The third, of course, is personal contact with or by a local minister, the revelation in letters or booklets that there is a bona fide church organization that they can begin to attend church, although in our case we let them attend church anytime they're ready, whether they come in the back door or the front door during services. We never saw them or never heard of them before. In another case I know of, it takes a, a grueling process of screening uh, up in Poplar Bluff, where we were the other day, we were told how the local pastor of the, WC, of the yeah, WCG church, uh, his own parents want to come to church to hear him preach, and he forbids them to come. Uh, there are certain things they haven't measured up to yet, and he said, Dad and Mom ain't good enough to come to church to hear me preach. Well, I think Dad and Mom are better off, my own opinion. I wouldn't go across the street to hear him preach, but, but uh, and I, I remember vaguely this, this uh, well, I won't go into that. Anyway, uh, it, it's rather strange. I was very heartened on the Passover. I don't know if those ladies are here today. I have to look and see, and I'm not sure that I see them. But we had about, I think, four ladies, probably three generations, a grandmother, mother, and daughter, uh, who came in. I never saw them before. And this was the first time, as they told me, that they'd ever taken communion with us. And they said, these 
the things that you were saying and doing were so strange we almost got up and walked out. But they went back there and duly went through the foot washing ceremony, listened to all the scriptures that were read, and then went away with a whole lot of literature, and I think asked Charlie, I hope they did, for some tapes about the meaning and the purpose of the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. That illustrates a point. A uh, superdeacon with the swastika on his arm would have met them at the door in some churches I know about. Who are you? Uh, where are you from? Are you members of the church? Well, have you read the autobiography? Oh, that's required reading. You can't come in here till you've read the autobiography. And that's true, by the way. And uh, there would have been a certain number of booklets and pamphlets you have to read and be screened. Now, sometimes I wonder how in the world churches grow. I mean, when people are like a ripe peach on the vine or on the limb and just ready to fall, and they come looking, hungering, thirsting for some truth, for some fellowship, for a place to come in out of the dark world out there and to partake of the Passover, I have never been able to understand how someone can say, no, you can't be baptized when you desperately want to. You're not ready. To me, that desperate want to means he's ready. And to me, when somebody says, I've got to take the Passover, means you bet he has. He needs to real badly, and I'm not going to tell him no. So we had, I think, a very fine Passover service here in Tyler. I hope all the rest of you did, and I know you must have wherever you attended, and the people all over the church. And now we enter the Days of Unleavened Bread. We've got some serious rows to hoe ahead of us. As you so well know, I won't repeat myself till I am hoarse. I cannot talk about the finances to the general public, and I never do. I explained to them over in Dallas that three-tiered approach, and I showed how, on many occasions, when people will actually write a letter, put a $5 bill in there, and say, this is because I really appreciated the magazine, I'd like to pay you for it for years and years and years, and I assume they're still doing it, we would put that money right back in the envelope. We had a form letter. The letter said, I'm sorry you misunderstood, you may not pay for the magazine or the literature, it is not for sale, then it does go on and explain ethically there are those who voluntarily contribute and there is a tithe-paying church membership. If we misunderstood, you know, if you want to contribute, that's fine, but we want to let you know you cannot pay for your subscription. And we're following exactly that same policy. I could go back and perhaps look at some of my old files if I've still got that information, but I know we must have sent back between twelve dollars and $20,000 a year in the WCG in some years. That's a lot of money because of putting money right back in envelopes and sending it. Now, you can say, well, we were guilty of reverse psychology. We knew that most of those people would send it right back, and in fact, probably most of them did. I don't know. But I still have to say, in defense of that policy, do you know of, could you lay out for me on paper, could you show me, biblically based, any more ethical, honest, fair method of approaching the general public than we are using? Never ask them for money. Give away all literature. We're giving away full paperback books that we have to print, which cost us thousands of dollars, and would charge them two twenty-five in a bookstore, about $4 by the time they get through paying, you know, we pay for the salaries and the taxes and utilities and the building and the postage and the envelopes and the work and all of that, and send them a book worth two twenty-five. We measure success in terms of how many dollars it costs us to influence one out of thousands of listeners or viewers to write for free literature. And then we say it costs us approximately thirty or thirty-five or forty dollars to get one person 
to ask us to give them something that costs us money. Now, as I said before, if you know of any more equitable way, any more fair, just and honest way to perform God's work, let me know. I have never come up with one yet. The tithe payers in the church are those who support the work, and they are the ones to whom we go with financial information and to whom we uh, talk when there is, is a time of real need. And I sent out a bulletin and asked all of our ministers all around the country this year to especially inform the brethren we do have a pretty serious need. We've had quite a slump in income in the last uh, month or two, so that I've been seeing some red ink and a minus on the year where we have every year so far been a plus. Not every year, but I mean we have the last couple of years had a little bit of a plus, and right now we're going at a minus over the year the preceding year. I'm really hoping that the offertory on these days of unleavened bread here on the first day and the last day will help correct that, and perhaps we'll be back, back in some black ink, at least even, if not a little ahead of last year. We must be, if we're going to be able to come out with watch, pay these bills on television, and make this really important shift in direction that is going to cause the work to grow, I believe that if we do that collectively, and all of us recognize our own responsibility, one year from today, I'll probably be standing here and telling you that we now have oh, probably 40,000 or so on the mailing list instead of about 14,000. And believe me, when we've got 40, then 60, 80, 100,000 names on that mailing list, then we're going to begin to reach out and begin really impacting the country. I asked in a letter, I don't know if this is one I sent out or one I'm working on, but there are those who believe that the work is over. Because you see, sometimes human beings tend to think that the work is dependent upon their own lifespan, no matter how short or how long that lifespan may be. And when that lifespan comes to an end, obviously their work is over. Well, their work is over. But is the work over? Now, you might do this. You might take a survey. I ask people in the letter, either that I sent out or am working on, Go out into the supermarkets and among your friends and associates and ask people in the world questions about the future. Find out how many of them know that the United States is, or at least know that we preach, we believe, and we say that the United States is Manasseh of the house of Israel, one of the lost ten tribes. Secondly, ask them, do they know that in every prophecy in the Bible showing Israel, the lost tribes of Israel, and the second coming of Christ, the two events mentioned together, that Christ comes for the purpose of releasing them from captivity, that the great harlot that sits over all of the false churches is depicted as having heavily laid her yoke upon the house of Israel, that the beast power has had them in captivity, utterly destroying their populaces, Find out in the general public in the United States how many, be honest with yourself now, think about it from our standpoint, not the other organization, from our standpoint, how many, what percentage of the people in the United States of America expect the United States to collapse, to be attacked, and to be taken captive? How many? 0.001%? I don't even know if it's that many. How many know and know that they know that a United States of Europe is coming, that Germany will be reunited, 
that in the context of some of the Eastern European nations, very likely Poland, Czechoslovakia, probably Hungary and Romania, with the two Germanys now united as one land, which they truly are, that a United States of Europe embodying perhaps 250 million people from the Urals to the Atlantic Wall will comprise a greater industrial and economic power than the United States of America and will become our enemy, having worked out a deal with the Soviet Union and become a third power block in the world, and that they will figure very importantly in the future of the United States. What is the percentage of the American public? I know that Hal Lindsey believes in the day of the Lord. I know Billy Graham does. I know there are books about the late great planet Earth and Countdown to Armageddon. Everybody, from the time that my father before me and I got on the prophecy bandwagon, and I think they took a clue from us if the truth were known, began hitting prophecy. I came up years and years and years ago and commissioned the writing of the four booklets and did a lot of the work myself on the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Guess what the most popular new book Billy Graham has done is called? The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. He's calling it Approaching Hoofbeats. Everybody's getting into the book of Revelation. Well, my father wrote the key to the book of Revelation in the 1930s. But I ask you, has that work been done? Is that work, if the work is the work to warn the people, is it over? Is it finished? Have they been warned? I'd like us to just take up that challenge and find out what is the percentage out there who could even guess at what the work is supposedly trying to tell them. I think it's very low. And as I look at the events of the last six years, I can only say God has allowed what has happened because he hasn't prevented it. I know my Bible says that all things work together for good to those that are called and according to his purpose. I now look at the future, and I look at a work to which God has called me, which is now apparently just beginning, and at another work which has obviously come to an end. I cannot help but see it in that context. I am past the half-century mark, but in another sense, so far as radio and television is concerned, or in going out to these personal appearance campaigns, I think God has got a lot of good years that he can squeeze out of the tired old frame yet. And I think I can still speak with some authority and some knowledge and some purpose before the general public in my country and other countries, if God so wills. And I think that work is going to be done. That is of God's doing, not mine. So I hope you will think deeply about that. And we have now come to the time of the offertory. If Mrs. Linda Brookerson will come up, she's going to play for us while the deacons and their assistants pass among us and pass the hat. Uh, then Jesus came on the piano, after which I'll be right back up for a special occasion. It's always a happy occasion when we have some ordinations. In our case, the ordinations are suggested by the local pastors and then sent around to all of the ministerial council. Mr. Dart is the secretary of the council. It probably takes some months to clear it all. Then it comes back and the, the uh, certificates are made out and signed in Tyler. Well, we have two today. If they would come to the platform, and I'd like Mr. Austin Newell and Mr. Uh, Larry Watkins, if they could join me, unless Larry is busy elsewhere on the platform. If you'd come up now, Mr. Clarence Lucas from Denton and Mr. Ian Houghton from the Tyler Congregation, both of whom have been approved for ordination and credentials have already been made out. 
So we're going to have that ceremony at this time. I'm going to ask uh, Austin if you'd like to do the honors for Mr. Lucas. Lucas. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I actually forget how many of those I signed, but I think uh, there are at least four or five, maybe five or six other ordinations taking place around the country probably today. So we'll have that in the newspaper a little later on for you. Mr. Newell went through those three aspects of unleavened bread, which is required meat or food for this day. I want you to turn to the 13th chapter of Matthew and look, however, at the fact that leavening is used in two opposite analogies. In verse 33, Jesus in a parable said, Another parable spake he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. Now that ought to tell us something about leavening that there is nothing inherently wrong with leavening. He uses the analogy of leaven as a type of the kingdom of God because of the insidious or surreptitious or secret method by which little yeast spores bud and divide and cause at certain temperatures carbon dioxide bubbles to be released in solid substances and cause bread to become light and fluffy and airy instead of brittle or hard or like hardtack. I think it is interesting that when you study it in the encyclopedias under bread or yeast or under leaven, that you will discover that apparently the ancient Egyptians are the most ancient culture who knew about leavening. And it's interesting that it was in Egypt that God revealed to the Israelites they should now, for the first time, bake their bread without leavening. I'm beginning to wonder if they'd even discovered it. The Israelitish people had known about leavened bread before getting down into Egypt. And if, in fact, that the Egyptians were the, in a sense, inventors, although it would have happened naturally eventually. A little bit about that is interesting. Bread is called the staff of life in history. Bread comes in hundreds of forms and is baked from many, many different types of grain. We can use rice. As a matter of fact, more people subsist on rice bread than the bread of wheat or other grains because of the monumental number of people in some of the Southeast Asian and Asiatic countries like China and India and uh, so on. Wheat, barley, corn, rye, oats. Would you believe in the South Pacific even the taro root is ground up into powder and is used for baking bread? And also the cassava plant, which is a potato-like type of a plant is used to make bread, potato bread. Maybe you've had some of that. Some people have even actually, I guess, dried it out in some way and made bread out of squash. But some type of organic fiber is necessary. Usually we think of wheat, barley, corn, and rye. And it is called the staff of life throughout all of history. Have you ever studied what yeast or what leavening really is? Actually, no one knows where it comes from. If I could draw you a picture of a yeast spore, just be a round blob with a little dot in the middle a single-celled plant belonging to the mushroom family called fungi. You know, you've heard the joke, there's a fungus among us. Well, there is. Uh, it, it does teach us a little bit about people who become a little overly concerned getting into the darkest corner of their home with a powerful flashlight and a very busy vacuum cleaner to make sure that they get every shred and scrap, every tiny microscopic crumb of leavening out of those homes. I was astounded when I discovered a sign one time 
on a door, I think in a faculty locker room in Pasadena, sealed, uh, and it, it had, had a notification, this room has been unleavened, and people were not allowed to go in there. And apparently this crew of workmen, a whole crew, I mean with ladders and hoses and who knows what, rakes to get out the shag carpets and vacuum cleaners, going around room after room underneath. You see somebody's rear end disappear underneath the sofa, under there with the thing going, you know, getting all the crumbs out. Then they would seal it and put a big sign on, you know, verboten, I mean forbidden entry. If you don't go in here, you might have leavening in your pocket or some might drop out of your ear or something. So keep this place absolutely clean and without leavening. The Jews developed over the years a ceremonial search, and it was done almost like an Easter egg hunt inside the house, where the old patriarch of the family would take a candle and it would go around the house and they'd search for leaven. It was a lot of fun. You know, when you think about that, we could have as much fun on the Days of Unleavened Bread as they do in Easter. We could say, leaven, leaven, who's got the leaven? You know, you could hide crumbs in the house and have the kids go looking for it. Mom could go around with a cookie on the day before unleavened bread, eating a cookie and every now and then throwing a crumb. And the kids could be given prizes for finding the most crumbs. And uh, I'm kidding, of course, but I mean, if you really know what leavening is, it is a single-celled plant, and right now, are you ready for this? The room is full of leavening. It's a beautiful spring-like day, and the wind is blowing. Now, where do yeast spores come from? Nobody knows. Where do they go? Nobody knows. They are just out there. They are part of nature. Now, if you ask me, where does water come from? Oh, well, it comes out of the sky, or it comes down the creek. But, I mean, if you ask me, where did it originally come from? And then I study water, and I see how it's made up of all of these various liquids, and when you can uh, boil it, it acts at a certain, in a certain fashion, at a certain temperature, that it crowds together. All the molecules are very lonesome, and they just seek to get together, and they cling together. And when you drop them, they immediately say, oh, let's protect ourselves. And so they form a perfect round sphere as they drop. They don't fall and find elongated, jangled, weird-looking shapes, but they crowd together, and they kind of form a protective shield on the exterior, which is hard to enter. As a matter of fact, they do so to the detriment of divers who have literally split their skulls on a leaf. Diving off a high board and without their arms to part the surface, people have been injured badly, and I assume some of them been killed, by hitting a piece of a newspaper or a little leaf floating on a placid surface, surface of a lake. And if you've ever gone water skiing and been towed at about 50 miles an hour and you take a tumble, water doesn't want to let you in. It says, no, keep him out. We're all tucked together here. And he goes skip, skip, you know, around in circles and just thrashing around till he slows down enough to finally the big toe digs in, then the elbow digs in, then his nose, and then finally he's all away in the water. It's just out there. It's part of nature. It was made, I guess, when creation was made. Now, a fungi that is called a yeast spore is a single-celled plant, and it feeds, when it gets the chance, on other organic substances, and it does a funny thing. First of all, even by itself, but more rapidly when it is feeding on something, like maybe grass in your yard after you've mowed it, yeast cells fall on it. And you know how bacteria will attack it, and insects will attack it. And it'll get a kind of a rank odor. It always smells good when you go by a newly mown 
wheat field or a field of hay. There's a smell about new mown hay that is attractive to us. Well, it's because the blades are crushed as well as ruptured and a certain fluid comes out and immediately these little yeast spores begin attacking it. Now, there is sugar and there is alcohol in a true or a natural state throughout God's creation. When a little yeast spore attacks dough, in this case, dying wheat, you know, it's dying now that you've destroyed it, you've ground it up, you've taken it apart from its pure form, otherwise it'd stay that way with the wheat germ intact and the little wheat germ oil there and the protein and the starch. It would stay that way for thousands of years if you store it where there is an airless area where it can't be subjected to humidity. I understand experiments were conducted on wheat that was taken out of stone pots sealed in the pyramids, and they planted it, and it grew. And that wheat was stored there before the birth of Christ by thousands of years. But once you destroy that beautiful little piece of grain by tearing it up and grinding it, it's going to uh, gradually rot. It can be attacked by little insects. I don't know how they find their way in the cracks of the tiniest vessels, and I don't know where they come from. But weevils will appear, even in a cereal box, an oatmeal box, or a jar of wheat, unless you seal it totally against some little critter that gets in there and lays an egg, and the larva stage becomes a weevil. How they do it, I don't know. I don't have any fruit flies except when there's fruit around. I never find them. My house has no fruit flies. But I could leave a pair on the sink inside the house. There aren't any. You can search my house. You cannot find a fruit fly. But you leave that thing there for just a little while, and there'd just be swarms of them around it. Now, where in the world do they come from? They must be hiding in the carpet. They're not really. They can't be. But, but there they are. Now, if I could draw you a picture of a yeast spore dividing, you would see that it kind of, of, of forms a bud. Like you ever bought, bought a potato that had a little thing, kind of like a little bitty potato growing out the side of it? Well, that's the way it looks. And then pretty soon it just separates. Now there are two little yeast spores. Why does it do that? I don't know. But you have them right now on your head and on your nose, and on your shoes, and on your jacket. There are yeast spores in the air. When you put them in bread, you don't have to put them in bread, just leave the bread subjected to the air, inside or outside, better outside, open up the window and put it outside. And then you allow a few hours, not very many hours are required to go by. As a matter of fact, you can enhance this. I want to tell you personal experience because I knew about this, so I did it. You can enhance it so it'll happen more rapidly, but it will become leavened. Now, you could... Uh, have no yeast and no baking soda or baking powder. Some people go so far they think they shouldn't even drink what they call pop. And that's a dumb word, really, because the first time they ever opened a bottle went pop, I guess, and they call it pop. But it really is soda water or, or colored soda water. Some people decided years ago that it was the days of unleavened soda water and unleavened beer. And they poured out all their soda water and poured out all their beer. And they probably did them good. They probably felt more righteous than other people who didn't. And so it was good for them, I guess. But it wasn't necessary. That isn't, there, there's no way that you can avoid all of the little yeast spores that there are. A yeast plant acts on sugar. Why it does, I don't know. It just is the way God made it. It converts sugar into alcohol, and that is called fermentation. It's caused by the growth of those plants. They rapidly grow, especially in 80 to 85 degrees. Now, each one of these little yeast spores, as it feeds on rotting, decaying organic substances, you don't like to think of bread dough as rotting or decaying, but it really is. It's fermenting from the minute you make it.
pharisaical religion of its leaven and its vanity, and they become a fully bona fide, wrapped up, made member, as Christ used the language, when he is made, when he's made a proselyte, you duly take him out and use the Ross ring method or whatever, circumcise him. And uh, when he's all duded up, you know, looks like the rest of you, you make him twofold the child of hell that you yourselves are. Fascinating language. Woe unto you, you blind guides, would say, and then he talks about the temple, and that was another one of their great errors. They didn't even seem to think about God himself, but they had it all down in some mundane way. You swear by the temple, it is nothing. Whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. You fools and blind, whether it's greater the gold or the temple, it sanctifies the gold. And you say, whosoever shall swear by the altar, that's no big deal. But whoever swears by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. Isn't that a weird religion? Well, they actually had to have big meetings and parlays and conferences and get together. Now, Brother Jones, you think it's wrong. Somebody comes up and say, I swear by the altar that I will uh, give thus and such of my goods to the church next year. And somebody else is saying, I don't. I swear by the gift that is on. Which do you think is right? You, can you imagine how many hours they must have spent in conference trying to figure that out and to come to that decision? And it was the wrong one every time. That is interesting when you look into it. You fools and blind, whether is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift. It wouldn't be worth anything if it weren't there on the altar in that temple which makes the gift of value toward God. Whosoever therefore shall swear by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him it dwells therein. And he that shall swear by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him it sits thereon. But Jesus taught, swear not at all, because of how ludicrous it looks for an air-breathing carrot-eater down here on the earth, sweating and exuding that ooze, which makes him very unpleasant after a day or two without a bath, to say, I swear that I will do thus and such, when God tells him, you don't know that you're going to take your next step. You see, I, picked, I rigged you up with a pump. Now, you call it a heart, but there's a pump in there, and it just squeezing away all the time. And you've got nothing to do with it. You can't start it, and you can't stop it. You're just there. Oh, I hope it's running tonight, you know. And any time he's telling you mundane crawling, he says, Thou worm, Jacob, don't you know that you're like a gnat, that you're like the grass of the earth? And for a man to say the expression, and I won't repeat it, the word by, then take the name of God is one of the most ultimate blasphemies that could ever pass a man's mouth. Because it is so ludicrous, he doesn't know that he's going to take another step and still survive. His pump might quit. But he says, I will do thus and such. And God wants to say, now hold it a minute. You can't do anything. You can't even breathe if I don't allow it. And so Christ taught, swear not at all. Don't take words and put them with your yes or your no to make it real impressive to other human beings and say, oh yes, by the blankety blank, the blank, 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 unprintable, unrepeatable, so-and-so, I sure will. People are at, wow, he really means it. Or they put you up on the stand, will you raise your right hand? You can say, why, judge, it's empty. And they'll look at you, what are you, trying to make trouble or something? How about my left one? How about taking off my shoe and showing my foot's empty? I'll be glad to stand on one leg. But they say, raise your right hand. I don't know where that came from. Maybe it was because they used to have little pistols they, they had in the courtroom. They want to make sure they didn't have a weapon. And do you solemnly swear that to you, everything in testimony, you should give the truth, the whole truth, nothing but truth, so help you. And then they add the name of God. 
person's real solemn, he says, I do. He's got his hand on a book he's never read. Doesn't know what's in there. They could have Grimm's fairy tables in a leather binding with Holy Bible on it. He wouldn't know the difference. And then what happens? He's there in the witness stand. Everybody in the courtroom knows he's a liar. The entire jury figures he's going to lie. The prosecuting attorney or the attorney for the defense try to tear apart everything he just said after he's swearing on this Bible that he's going to tell the truth. Now, they don't like it. When you obey God in even that little, seemingly insignificant way. I remember going to the Los Angeles passport office many years ago, and there was a guy there that was one... Well, I learned years ago in the Navy about ensigns, and I won't go into that, but the lower the rank, the greater the awesome power. Uh, people in the parking lot at uh, Squaw Valley had more power than anybody ever in the pulpit. I mean, they got the job done, boy. I mean, if a woman wanted to go to the bathroom was sitting up there 14 aisles, you know, boy, she came down, her, her high heels never even touched the floor. They had her one arm and the other arm like that, and here she came. But anyway, there are cases where great authority like that goes to people's heads. Traffic directors have it along the roadside repair place where they have a stop sign there, and they're able to stand there, and you think it's General Douglas MacArthur telling you to stop your car. Well, this guy passes me the form, and I just scribble over the form. It says, I do, and then it has the word solemnly swear, that everything that I've said, and so on, and so on, and so on, and it says, so help me, and then they want to print the name God, but they don't know. I happen to know it means Elohim, they don't even know what it means. It scratch it all out and put, after the word solemnly, affirm. Scratch it all out, and down here, put affirm. Shove it over at it. He said, you can't do that. Well, yes, I can. I just did it. I've already done it. <laughs> but that's not legal. I said, well, you check your records, because I'd already done it once before to a different guy, and I knew you could do it. And I knew that there was an actual form. But you know that they finally, the federal government, I guess enough people, I don't know if we started it or somebody started it, have actually changed their forms now. Do you solemnly, and then they put the word swear, slant, affirm. And after years, they actually changed the federal forms so you don't have to swear in writing that, you know, you really were born in Portland, Oregon in 1930, which is really ridiculous. But anyway, they want you to swear. Christ said, swear not at all. It's impressive to people to swear. I have some very good friends, and they're friends who are ignorant of the Word of God. They're ignorant of my real life. The only life they see is my life when I'm there with my funny-looking golf cap on and my golf cart. And they get out there, and they just swear the air blue all the time. And it's the Lord this and that, when really they're the one at fault. They blame him when it was the loose nut on the end of the shaft. Verse 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have admitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, notice what is right after that, mercy and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not leave the other undone. You blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. I won't read every bit of this because I want to go to another couple of examples right quickly. I won't turn to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, but I read much of the whole chapter in preparation for this today. And in looking at all that Solomon said about vanity, he said, Vanity of vanities, all, and I have encircled the word all because it's an all-encompassing word, all is vanity. Now, during the Days of Unleavened Bread, I'd like to tell you something about vanity right quickly. Vanity is available to us all. 
It doesn't matter what age. It doesn't matter our handicaps. It doesn't matter our problems. I have seen in my tired old 28 some odd years in preaching now and more than that in connection with and familiarity with the Church of God, the vanity of the very elderly. I've seen real old people that are so proud and so full of vanity that they reek with it, that you can hardly stand to be around them, that they think because they've had the good fortune to abuse their bodies and to manage to escape what the natural consequences were of everything from dipping snuff to big cigars and smoking all their lives, to be around on this good green earth, age 87, that they can get away with practically any social faux pas, any embarrassing statement, making any kind of a judgment or a decision, or make their demands upon other people. Now, that's not true of all elderly. It's only true of vain elderly. Some of them aren't. Some are very, very humble. I've seen a vanity of the meek. I've seen people who are so meek that they make you sick. They get so meek that all of a sudden you realize, hey, wait a minute. This has gone beyond just normal, simple human meekness of a person who is unprepossessing and willing to take the back seat, but this is being paraded. I remember the guy that epitomized that to me. He came up, kind of hangdog, hung his head. He was sitting up in the balcony. He wanted to let me know that he had been fasting and praying, and he said it in a very humble voice. But it was really funny because the, 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 the room was filled with about, you know, 550, 600, 700 people, and he had to go further than anybody in the building to get to me first. He was the first one in front of me after the sermon was over, and the first thing he was telling me was how hard he'd been fasting and praying. I thought a minute about how Christ said, when you fast, appear not unto men to fast, and when you pray, go in and pray in secret, and do not your alms before men. And I made a mistake. I told him about it, and he didn't like it, and I have never been sorry. <laughs> but anyway, I told him, I said... You're not supposed to tell me. I mean, it, I'm not the one that needs to be impressed if you're fasting and praying. There's no need. You keep that secret and keep it quiet. Sooner or later, I've seen it all. If you think I do not know that I have in me certain vanities that express themselves, oh, yeah. You've probably seen some of it coming out here and there. I know that God has given me a gift of, of glib gab. I know that God has given me an inexhaustible supply of redundant uh, adjectives. And I use them sometimes to the point of tedium. And I think that is vanity. My glasses may be vanity. I don't know. I think I look more dignified in them. What do you think? <laughs> and uh, if I don't get off some of the real nice foods I've been eating, and all of that food's waiting for us, and I better shut up and let us get at it, I'm going to get a great big belly one of these days. I'm not going to, but I mean, if I did, you know, I'd overcome it. I'd say, well, it's, up, it's what's up front that counts anyway. And I would... I would tell you that, that that is, I think it is better for a man of my age to be a little more portly. I think it carries a certain dignity. I, I would probably figure a way around it. I know that there's a vanity of the bald and a vanity of those with a whole thatch of hair. There's a vanity of the well-dressed and the poorly dressed. There's a vanity of teenage and a vanity of youth. I remember one gal, oh, it was the greatest experience of shattered vanity I've ever seen. It was funny just tickles me to think about it yet. This gal wore saddle shoes and bobby socks, and she was in love with her dear friend there at Ambassador College, way back in the old years when we were so tiny we only had about 36 students. 
I guess as a girl in high school, she'd seen some girl that she greatly admired, and even her walk, you know. You know where it says in Isaiah 3 about the daughters of, of Zion are haughty and walk with stretched forth necks? You know, if you ever see women putting on a walk, this gal did it. I mean, she literally, she gave it the whole deal, the whole nine yards. Every time she walked by, it was like, this is the grand finale, folks. The curtains are parted. Ta-da! And here she came. Well, it was, it was chorale recital, and nothing can be worse than 36 people in the audience. That's a small crowd, and you're too close to them. Now, I have protection. I'm up here, I'm behind, and I'm up, and I'm away from some of you, so I'm not feeling the same way I do when I'm right down on the floor, and you're looking right up my schnoz while I'm talking to you. But they had a piano, and the front row was real close, and she was there by the piano, and she took her place, and she was going to sing this love song, and the great romance on campus was between her and her boyfriend who was sitting in the back row. She fixed him with this sickly, calf-like look, drew herself up to her full height and began to sing, and promptly forgot all the words. <laughs> and it was just an embarrassing mess. And I, I felt sorry for her. I really did. It was bad. But, but it was a lesson, however, learned, because it was the great moment, and the great moment didn't happen. I've always thought about some of the most embarrassing moments of life would be at the prom, you know, and you're taking a girl and you've got the car and you go walk up to the front door and just as you're going to kiss her goodnight, you sneeze. Like, oh, you know, spare me from, oh, the most awful thing that could ever happen. But it would sure, it would sure pierce the balloon, wouldn't it? You know, it would sure take away some vanity. I'll tell you, if you would read through during the Days of Unleavened Bread, the book of Ecclesiastes and also the book of Solomon, uh, Proverbs, there would be an awful lot of real interesting things in there about self-worship. I'm going to let us go. I've got a lot of scriptures I haven't covered, but you don't know that if I don't tell you because you can't see my notes. But remember that 1 Corinthians is the book that was written during the days of unleavened bread to the church and is the only book in the Bible that I know of. And if you read the scriptures that Mr. Newell quoted, 1 Corinthians 5, let us therefore keep the feast, not with all of those things of vanity and so on, but with the unleavened bread of mercy and truth. I know of an awful lot of people who are observing this feast and are preaching standard doctrine. They are preaching against leaven, and they know that leaven means sin, and they are being faithful to Leviticus 23 and to Exodus 12 and to 1 Corinthians 15 and all the other scriptures in the Bible, and they don't know that the scriptures we have reviewed when Christ was dealing with the Pharisees are almost characterizing a great deal of the spirit of that body. I wish they could learn that lesson and find out what it is to eat humble pie like we've been eating for about six years.